Shalom. This is Reverend John Ferret. Welcome to session two of the four-part series that I've entitled the Arch Archaeology of Passover. This session is entitled The Palm and the Lamb. And once again, we're going to consider what it was like on that first Palm Sunday. The disciples are going down with Jesus. He's riding on the colt of a donkey. The people are shouting, cutting down palm branches, laying their cloaks before him. What did they hear? What, what, what's going through their minds? What do they understand? And so indeed, this is what we will be doing as we continue with the uh, archaeology of Passover. Before we start, I wanted to mention a few things before. One, I want you to realize that all podcasts now are accessible from Apple iTunes, Google Play Music, iHeartRadio, and you could access them at the website, www.lightofmenorah, all one word, lightofmenorah, M-E-N-O-R-A-H, M-E-N-O-R-A-H, so it's www.lightofmenorah, all one word, .org. Now, if you go to Light of Menorah, let's say you're accessing these podcasts on iHeartRadio or Apple iTunes, but if you go to the website, each session has a lesson description. Normally, what I do is, in that lesson description at the website, I provide links to other additional resources. They might be videos, pictures. Uh, I know in the next um, lesson three, we're going to have a link to an amazing video the trial of Jesus. Amazing. But that, that's in the lesson description that you'd find at the website. So in this lesson, for instance, the one we're on right now, I have a special link to several important articles. One is from Jerusalem Perspective. It is a scholarly site of both Christian Bible historians, archaeologists, and Jewish scholars, Bible historians, cultural experts, and archaeologists. You have to pay money to join this place. But they did an awesome article from Jerusalem Perspective on Jesus' final journey to Jerusalem. I think you're going to find it amazing as it sets the timeline for all of the things that we're discussing. There will be an article by Dr. Craig Keener called Messianic Expectations. Uh, which is appropriate for this session. And there will be my graduate paper called The the Archaeology of the Passion. And in there, for instance, I will have a number of pages that will be reviewing what was the tomb of Jesus like from an archaeological perspective. And you will see that it's 100% proven for sure that his tomb was not the garden tomb that many people go to in Jerusalem these days, but from a scholarly point of view, an archaeological point of view, from a scientific point of view, it cannot be Jesus' tomb. So almost every session has these links for further resources and study and pictures and videos, so don't don't forget that. Check it out. Next at the website, and again, that's www.lightamenorah, all one word, as I said before, .org. On the right-hand side, I want you to please click on the calendar. New updates are happening. So you may want to do that when you are listening to this podcast and click and see what's going on. 
Also, there is a donation button. Uh, you can actually send donations to Light of Menorah by mail. The address is right there on the donate button on the little basket that you see there. Or you can click on there and there is a link where you can donate online. And we really would appreciate your financial support as we're going on a new path. We're going on a new direction that uh, it's just amazing. We're doing podcasts. Uh, we're going to be doing Zoom classes very shortly. Classes using Zoom meetings. Videos. So those are some things that we really need your help on because financially this uh, uh, is a ministry that depends upon you. Nobody gets a salary in Light of Menorah. And all of your donations go 100% to the ministry. Also there you'll see a download for Podbean which is an app and you can actually download that app to your phone whether it's an Apple phone, an iPhone or your Android phone and uh, allows you to have full access right from the website and this means that you can actually on your phone be alerted when a new podcast actually has been published. So let's begin our study here in lesson two that I have entitled The Palm and the Lamb. So many can still argue for the year they think that Jesus died or, or the day that he was crucified. I fully understand this. This is still a debate among credible scholars. As a Bible historian, I know there's more needed that I would have to give you to actually prove that the year is exactly 30 AD. And so what we're saying, what I'm saying in these sessions, it is highly probable that it can be 30 AD. And again, as we take a look at the connections between 30 AD and our doctrine and our beliefs, and the way we read the Gospels and the accounts of the Passion and the triumphal entry of Jesus at 30 AD fits, just amazing. So 30 AD is highly probable. 30 AD doesn't fit at all because Jesus arrived in Bethany six days before Passover. And in session one, you can see in Bethany, six days before Passover in Bethany, and you can actually uh, go into lesson one and uh, based upon that discussion, uh, find out why 33A doesn't, doesn't necessarily fit. 30 AD does, it fits like a glove. 33 AD and Good Friday is more like a tradition for the church. It's like celebrating Christmas on December 25th. Most of Christians agree today that Jesus was not born on December 25th. We've got, we've got too much history and background to realize that it was made up by the Roman church. But the church today finally caught up with real history that's been out there. And really, biblical history, archaeology... Uh, is something that uh, is even de-emphasized in many, many, many seminaries. And so uh, for us, uh, we have to reconnect to putting the Bible in its historical context. And thank God there are so many good resources today. So as Christmas, December 25th, is, is clearly a tradition, um, it's, it's basically the same now at 33 AD and Good Friday. Basically, the church is beginning to catch up with history. So the issue, though, for Christmas and the issue for the crucifixion is not the date, but the truth of Christian doctrine 
Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and was buried, and he rose again on the third day. That doctrine is um, an immovable rock that we can take to the bank. So, it is highly probable that Jesus enters Jerusalem on a Sunday in 33, 30 AD. And again, take a look at uh, the website. There is a link to an article from Jerusalem Perspective and about Jesus' last journey into Jerusalem. But one question is, why not Monday? Why, why didn't he enter Monday? Um, why Sunday? Is there something about the Sunday before Passover in 30 AD that we can't see? Did the Father arrange it so that it would happen on that Sunday in 30 AD? What's going on? Well, let's get into the Torah. I'm going to go to Exodus chapter 12, verses 1 through 13. A lot to read here. Exodus 12 verses 1 through 13. Now the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be the beginning of months for you. It is to be the first month of the year to you. So I just wanted to let you know that right here this verse says this is God's new year. We have a new year, January 1st. That's the secular new year. That's really the pagan new year. Uh, the Jewish people have a new year. They, they call it Rosh Hashanah. There's a lot of rationale why they think that's the new year, but God has established the new year right here. It's the first, um, this will be the first month of the year to you, the month of Nisan, as they call it. And this is the first month of the year. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying on the 10th of the month, they are each to take a lamb for themselves according to their father's households, a lamb for each household. Now, if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his neighbor nearest to his house are to take one according to the number of persons in them, according to what each man should eat. You are to divide the lamb. Your lamb shall be an unblemished male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. You shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month, Nisan 14. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight. Moreover, they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintels of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that same night, roasted with fire, and they shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled at all with water, but rather roasted with fire, both its head and its legs along with its entrails. And you shall not leave any of it over until morning. But whatever is left of it until morning, you shall burn it with fire. Now you shall eat it in this manner, with your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. You shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will go through the land of Egypt on that night, and I will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be assigned for you on the houses where you live, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to or befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So this is God's new year. It's the first month of the year. 
And on the 10th of the month, on Nisan 10, so that's 10 days after the new moon, they're to choose their lamb. It has to be a one-year-old male, unblemished lamb. Now this also could be called a ram, just to let you know. All lambs mature, all, all lambs mature, especially male lambs, at six months. They're considered adults. So these people are taking a one-year-old male lamb, unblemished. So this is a mature male lamb at six months, and you could call it a ram. This is critical for what I'll be doing in lesson three. But for I just wanted to bring that up right now. They are to keep the lamb, or the ram, till the 14th of Nisan. They kill it on the 14th, and the 14th of Nisan is called Passover, just before sundown, and they eat it that night. Well, when the sun goes down, it's a new day. It's the 15th of Nisan. It's the night of the full moon, and that would be the night, as we're reading in Exodus 12, of the first Passover Seder. Now, just as a FYI, Seder means order in Hebrew, and the word appears nowhere nowhere in any literature that comes out of Jesus' day at all. It first appears in the Babylonian Talmud, which was completed about 500 A.D. So the word Seder, order, the rabbis in the Talmud are specifying the rules and regulations of how you do the Passover meal. They're setting the order. And a lot of people say Jesus did a Seder. Well, he couldn't have because we cannot assume that what's in the Talmud, that custom, that said order, was also being used in Jesus' day. It could have been. We don't know. But like I said, the said order seems to be established. That word and the way they do specific things way after the temple is destroyed. So Jesus did not do a Seder. Matter of fact, neither did the Jewish people in Jesus' day. The word was not even used, probably, in that time. There may have been certain set ways that they did things, but it was not, you might say, published in any type of literature. Now you call, recall from session one, Jesus is crucified, and he dies, and is buried on Passover, the day. Now again, Passover, let's take a look at it, in Leviticus 23, verses 4 through 6. These are the appointed times of the Lord, holy convocations, which, will you, which, will, which you shall proclaim at the times appointed for them. In the first month on the fourteenth day, of the month at twilight is the Lord's Passover. So it's quite clear. The 14th day of Nisan, the 14th day of the month, is a day that's called Passover. Then on the 15th day of the same month, there is the Feast of Unleavened Bread to the Lord. For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. So the next day is the first day of unleavened bread. So, Jesus dies on the 14th. Sundown happens, then they have the Passover meal that night when they eat the lamb that was killed. And this is key. This is God's specific instruction, not man's. 
the Passover meal, call it the Passover Seder as we know it today, can only happen after sundown, after sundown of Nisan 14, which starts the day on Nisan 15. That's the only time. There's no other option. It must be on Nisan 15. Now, in Jesus' day, there was a group of religious men. They were very godly. They were called the Essenes. They did their Passover two days early. They decided to change it based upon the fact that they did not use the lunar calendar as Israel all did. They used a different calendar. So they changed it. So they had a different view. Now, this is interesting because these Essenes, godly men, they had an opinion. They changed when they were actually going to have their Passover meal. But God didn't change. He never does. Once again, my focus is on what does the Bible say and what doesn't it say? The Essenes changed it. But not us. We follow God's instruction, not man's. Okay then, why did Jesus ride in to Jerusalem on a Sunday in 30 AD? Again, he died on Passover. On a Thursday, it was Nisan 14, which means Wednesday was Nisan 13. Tuesday was Nisan 12, Monday was Nisan 11, and Sunday was Nisan 10. And we just read in Exodus 12, by God's own instruction, that this is the day in Egypt they were to pick the lamb for sacrifice. It was Lamb Selection Day. Now in John, chapter 5, verse 39, Jesus is talking to Pharisees, the scribes, probably the chief priests, and many others in the temple courts. And he says that all scripture testifies of him. Now he probably said this in 24 to 30 AD. I think he actually said it in 27 AD, three years before he died. For them who heard him, all they had was the Hebrew scriptures. So they understood that the Torah, the prophets, and the writings, the Tanakh, if you would, the Old Testament, this testifies of Jesus. And so when we look at this, we look at Exodus 12, and we look at the day that Jesus wrote in. It is the Passover season. Passover is coming up. It's going to be that Thursday in 30 AD. But he rides in on Nisan 10 in 30 AD, the first Palm Sunday. God chose his lamb. God chose the lamb of God. Matter of fact, if you go to Luke chapter 9, verse 35, God even says, the Father even says, this is my chosen one. Now, let's consider the two phrases. The phrase Lamb of God and the phrase Passover Lamb. And what I want to do is suggest an alternative way of looking at these two phrases based upon the Bible, based upon what the Bible says, not what men say. Now, the Passover Lamb, especially when we talk about the Old Testament, is clearly related to the Exodus. No doubt about it. There's nowhere, nowhere, 
in any place in the Old Testament where there's an indication that the Passover lamb is going to represent the Messiah or the Passover lamb is Jesus. Nowhere. Now there's some say that Jesus is the Passover lamb. They say, it's in the Bible. We read it. It's in the Bible. And I say, is it? Oh, yeah. And I'll say, no, it's not. You'd say, but I have the ESV Bible, and I read in 1 Corinthians 5, 7 that Jesus is the Passover lamb. It says it. The both words are there. Or somebody will come to me with the NIV, the nearly imperfect version of the Bible. And the reason why I say that is the NIV is one of those Bibles that's made to be read. It's a readable Bible. And some of the words are carefully chosen so that it becomes more readable as compared to the King James of the New American Standard. NIV, 1 Corinthians 5.7 says Jesus is the Passover lamb. However, if we take a look at the two versions of the Bible, which are exact word-for-word translations, the New American Standard Bible and the King James, they come from the original Greek, and in the original Greek, there is no word in the original Greek, lamb. All it says is, Jesus is the Passover, not the Passover lamb. But still some people argue, no! If that's what it means, the Passover, when it says Jesus is the Passover, it means the Passover lamb. And I have heard commentators actually say that. Well, let's take a look at this. Passover, in Hebrew, is the word Pesach. That's the noun. And when we take a look at Exodus 12, 1 through 12, you'll read that indeed the Lord is describing all the events as the Lord's Passover. The implication, not only there but in other places, that the Lord's Passover is not the lamb and not the meal, but it's the day that includes all the events where the lamb is killed, killed, there's the blood put on the doorpost, um, the, the cooking of the lamb, and finally the eating, the, the whole concept. So, let's take a look at another verse that again supports the idea that Passover means the day and not the lamb. Leviticus 23, 4-5, we just read it. The Passover is a day. It specifically says that as we've read it before. And then we can go to Exodus 34, 25, and this is so clear. This is what the Bible says. And we have to take what the Bible says, not what men say, not somebody's opinion. And you say, what does the Bible say in Exodus 34, 25? It basically says this, and the sacrifice that is done on the Feast of Passover... So in here, the phraseology is there is a sacrifice and there's a feast of Passover and they're separate. Passover is a day. Now it comes from the Hebrew verb, Pasach. And Pasach means to hop, to skip, or to exempt, or to spare. 
You can find this in the Gesenius Hebrew lexicon. You're not going to find this in Strong's Concordance. Please don't use that for looking up the meaning of a Greek or Hebrew word. You need lexicons, like Thayer's for Greek and Gesenius for Hebrew. And that's what it says in Exodus chapter 12, verse 13. The Lord says that I will pass over. The Hebrew verb there is pasach, to skip over, to hop over. So on that day, on the Lord's Passover, Israel was exempted from God's wrath. They were spared because he skipped over. This is a more complete picture. You see the picture? They're exempt, they're spared because God skipped over them. He jumped over them. He passed over them. It's more of a complete picture. And that's Hebrew. Hebrew is more conceptual in meaning than it is in a definition. Now, the Passover lamb was only part of the Lord's Passover. It was part of the Lord's plan. Now, in the original Greek, as I said, it says Jesus is the Pesach, the noun. He is the Pesach. He is the one through whom God skips over. Because of Jesus, God hops over us, passes over us, and we're exempted and spared from God's wrath. This is not the Passover lamb. Because Jesus, nowhere in the New Testament, in the Greek, does it say that Jesus is the Passover lamb. He's the Passover. Now, clearly, the writers of the Gospels and the letters, they certainly make some very interesting connections. Not Well, not connections, references. And they're basically saying, Jesus is like the Passover lamb, but they never say he is the Passover lamb. Our translators did. Our translators did because they did not see that the Passover lamb is not the Passover. And in Romans 5, 9, in Paul's writing, we read the following. Much more than having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Through him. Through what? Through the Passover. Through the one that is our exemption. Through the one who is the one who spares us. So, the Lord's Passover. In the Hebrew Scriptures, in the Old Testament, it was a day. But the Lord's Passover in the New Testament, in the New Testament, was a person. And if we, by our own free will, choose Him, proclaim Him as Lord, Savior, and God, we're spared. We're exempted from God's wrath. Because He is the Passover. He is not the Passover Lamb. But let's return to the people on the Mount of Olives, on that road that came down from Beth Hagi, Beth Page, down and across the slopes of the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem. They were crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, Hosanna is a word 
that we use today in Christian praise songs or in prayers. Hosanna is a word where the implications were lifting up our praise to God. And it's very interesting because nobody asked the question, what does it mean in Hebrew? There's a song by Paul Belosh. He's a great artist. And the title of the song, he implies that Hosanna means praise is rising. <laughs> no. And again, I, I bless Paul and his music. But once again, we as Christians have to catch up to Bible history and to put the Bible back in its historical setting. They're speaking Hebrew. The Hebrew for Hosanna is Hoshana. And it means save us now. These people were crying out, Hoshana, Hoshana, Hoshana. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hoshana, Hoshana, save us, save us now. Save us now, Jesus. We're going to read this in John chapter 12, verses 12 through 15. On the next day, the large crowd who had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, they took branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him and began to shout, Hosanna, we're saying, Hoshana. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. They're proclaiming him king. Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it, as it was written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. Now all they had was the Hebrew scriptures, and they'll remember in Zechariah 9.9 that is a prediction of the coming of the Messiah, and it says, Your king, O Israel, is coming into Jerusalem riding on a donkey's colt. This is exactly what Jesus was doing. Jesus was making the statement, Who am I? I am the Messiah. I am the king of Israel. And the people shouted, yes, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Now the Greek word there is basilus. Basilus does not necessarily mean king. It can mean leader, prince, lord of the land. That's important. Now clear, they wanted the Messiah. They wanted the leader of Israel. They wanted to be saved. They wanted to be delivered from their sin. No. What do they want to be delivered from? Rome. Go to the website www.lightofmenorah.org and there will be that article by Dr. Craig Keener. He's a, an amazing, credible Bible historian, Bible scholar. He's the author of the InterVarsity Press Bible Commentary, the New Testament. And I'm, I mean, it's, it's a resource that I believe every person should have. They've come out, he and some other scholars came out with the Cultural Background Study Bible. <laughs> it's another, I haven't got it yet. Another book, The Historical Jesus of the Gospels, and many, many more. Take a look at his paper, Messianic Expectation. Because he, along with many other Bible scholars in Jesus' day, there was this fervor with the expectation of the coming of the Messiah. They wanted to be free of pagan Rome. They wanted to be out from under Roman domination. And source after source after source says, the Messiah, the way they 
pictured Messiah then. That he would come. He would come to defeat Israel's enemies. He would become the king of Israel. The king of peace. He would restore shalom to Israel. Which means peace and prosperity. So that, and you go to Micah 4.4, 4, because this is a prediction of the last time of the last days in Micah 4.4, 4, and in Micah 4.4 4 says that in the last days, every man will sit under his own vine and his fig tree. There's another messianic prediction in Zechariah 3.10, where God is talking through Zechariah, and it says, my servant the branch is going to come. And we know that that is a prediction of the Messiah. And in Zechariah 3.10, the same phrase is used. Every man will sit under his own vine and his fig tree. These were predictions of the days of Messiah. Where did they get this from? They got this from the days of Solomon. For it was understood that in the days of Solomon would be like the days of the Messiah. Solomon's name is Shlomo, means peace. Solomon, in 1 Kings 4.25, we read that Judah and Israel, all of Israel lived in safety, all the way from Beersheba to Dan. That means all of Israel from south to north. And it says everybody lived in safety and every man under his own vine and his fig tree. The days of Messiah would be like the days of Solomon. Solomon was Shlomo, Melech Shlomo, the king of peace. And Jesus, the prince of peace and the king of peace. So these people that are on the Mount of Olives, all of this is part of their anxiousness for the days of the coming of the Messiah so that Rome would be destroyed. But there's more. I'm going to consider part of Israel's history 170 years prior to this. Events that people on the Mount of Olives would remember. And perhaps this even adds even more. Adds even more to the insights so that we can understand why they're shouting that Jesus is the king of Israel, shouting, Hoshana, Hoshana, save us now, save us now, and waving palm branches. May help us understand a deeper idea of that first Palm Sunday. We're returning to the days of 170, 169 BC. The Greeks had taken control of Israel. And an evil, evil king, Antiochus IV Epiphanes, who declared himself as God on earth. He was having Jews martyred, killed, massacred, if they practiced their religion. Circumcision, or they even had a Torah scroll, or even went to the synagogue on the Sabbath. And so in 167 BC, a revolt started. It's called the Revolt of the Maccabees. It was led by Yehuda Maccabeus. Judas the Hammer. That was his nickname. Maccabeus was his nickname. His actual name was Yehuda ben Matathias. His dad was Matathias, head of the Hasmonean family. 
and they were a family of priests. Judas is assigned the task of leading the armies in the revolt against the pagan Greeks. And the pagan Greeks also had desecrated the temple. We know it. it's called the abomination of desolation. And when you read first and second Maccabees, we get a better idea of what that is. It's bringing in statues of pagan gods. It's initiating pagan sacrifices in the temple, in the Holy of Holies, where they had pagan worship. And part of their pagan worship was sexual orgies with male and female prostitutes, all in the house of Adonai. Now, the last battle that Judas fought against the Greeks was in 164 BC. He was outnumbered as usual, but he was just amazing. God blessed him. This definitely was God's hand upon his people. Jerusalem was restored, the temples restored, cleansed, and dedicated. And when they rededicated the temple, we now know that is Hanukkah. Hanukkah means dedication. So you can read all about this in 1 Maccabees chapters 1 through 4. But just because they defeated the Greeks, just because they gained control of Jerusalem again and cleansed the temple, the Greeks did come back. They came back like a flood. Now most of Judas's army went home. They figured, hey, we won. But the Greeks, like I said, kept on coming back. And in 160 BC, Judah had an army of 800 men facing an army of 20,000 infantry and 2,000 cavalry. Needless to say, in 160 BC, he was defeated. And in 1st Maccabees chapter 9, verses 17 through 22, we read, The fighting became very heavy on that last battle in 160 BC, and many fell on both sides. Judas himself fell, and the rest of the Jews took to, took to flight. Jonathan and Simon carried off Judas, their brother. They buried him in the family tomb at Modin and wept over him. Great was the grief in Israel, and they mourned him for many days, saying, How is our champion fallen, the Savior of Israel? The rest of the history of Judas, his wars, exploits, and achievements, all these were so numerous that they have not been written down. His brothers, Jonathan and Simon, they carry on after Judas's death. They bury him in the family grave, as it says, uh, that was we just read in Modin. They kept up the war, and in the war, Jonathan, one of Judas, the Maccabees' brother, he dies, but the oldest brother, Simon, carries on and finally defeats the Greeks, and they attain the ultimate victory. I want to read several verses from 1 Maccabees about this time when Simon defeated the pagan Greeks. Now, 1 Maccabees is written by a Jewish writer. We don't know his name. It was originally written in Hebrew. We lost the original Hebrew, but we do have the Greek. It was translated to the Greek. He wrote it about eh, maybe 120, someplace to 120 to 100 B.C., basically in the late 2nd century B.C. People of Jesus, therefore, were familiar with this book. It outlined all of the exploits of Judas, the hammer, Jonathan, Simon. So let's go to 1 Maccabees 13, 41 through 42. In the year 141 B.C., Israel was released from the Gentile yoke. The people began to write on their contracts and agreements. In the first year of Simon, the great high priest, general, and leader, 
of the Jews. Leader is Basilus. You might say king of the Jews. It's the same word they said. Here comes Jesus. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the Basilus of Israel. The same word. First Maccabees 13 and 51 and 52. It was on the 23rd day of the second month in the year, in 140 BC, that Simon was going to enter into Jerusalem. And he enters Jerusalem with a chorus of praise and the waving of palm branches with lute, cymbals, zithers, with hymns and songs to celebrate Israel's final riddance of the formidable enemy. Simon decreed that this day should be observed as an annual festival. I'm wondering if that's something that they did in Jesus' day. We have no record of it. Chapter 14, starting in verse 4, As long as Simon lived, Judea was at peace. Shalom. He promoted his people's welfare, and they lived happily all through the glorious days of his reign. Verse 8 through 15, They farmed their land in peace, and the land produced its crops, and the trees in the plains their fruit. Old men sat in the streets talking together of their blessings, and the young men dressed themselves in splendid military style. Simon supplied the towns with food and plenty and equipped them with weapons for defense. His renown reached the ends of the earth. He restored peace to the land. And there were great rejoicings throughout Israel. Now listen to this. Each man sat under his own vine and fig tree, and they had nothing to fear. This is exactly related to what we read in Micah and Zechariah. These are prophecies of the Messiah. And all of a sudden here, the writer of Maccabees, is he writing and giving his impression that he thinks Simon is the Messiah? He's the king and has established peace? This is exactly what the Messiah was supposed to do. Those were the days when every enemy vanished from the land and every hostile king was crushed. Simon gave his protection to the poor among the people. He paid close attention to the Torah and rid the country of lawless and wicked men. He gave new splendor to the temple and furnished it with the wealth of sacred vessels. And last, in 1447, Simon has agreed and consented to the high priest. He was the general and ethnarch of the Jews and the priest and the protector of all. Ethnarch is a Greek word that basically means governor. We could say Basilus, a leader. He was the high priest. There's some amazing connections between Simon and his days when he attained the ultimate victory over the Greeks and Jesus. Simon and Jesus, they both entered Jerusalem with a parade of praise and glory. Simon and Jesus, both of their processions, both of their parades, palm branches were used. Now remember, this is 170 years prior to Jesus' day. This is history that they would have remembered. We remember the Civil War. Simon is the leader. He's the ruler. He's the Basilus who kicked out the pagan Greeks. And for the people on the Manobalos that day, they're saying, if this is the Messiah, if this is Jesus, in their view, remember, it's their view of Messiah. And their view says, if this is Jesus, the Messiah, he will be like Simon. He will be a ruler king, a Basilus, and he will defeat the enemies of Israel just like Simon. 
And in Simon's day, in 1 Maccabees, we just read, every man lived under his own vine and his fig tree. And the people on the Mount of Olives, they too said, if Jesus is the Messiah, again, the Messiah in their view, he will restore shalom. He will be priest. There will be prosperity in the land, just like in Simon's day. In the days of Messiah, every man will live under his own vine and his fig tree. This is so amazing to reconnect to their days and to perhaps consider what they understood. Understood that day when they saw Jesus coming in. The first Palm Sunday in 30 AD. If it's 30 AD, it's Nisan 10. And one part of that day is the lamb. The father picked his lamb. As it says in Luke 9.35, this is my beloved son, this is my chosen one. It is the day the Lamb of God entered Jerusalem. And the people, they wanted Basilus. They wanted their leader, they wanted their commander, they wanted Messiah. Messiah would be a picture like Solomon. The days of Solomon, the days of Shalom. Or like Simon. And again, in both of their cases, every man lived under their own vine and their fig tree. Once again, we put the Bible in its historical context that there's so much, so much that helps us understand Palm Sunday in a deeper and more significant way. To me, all the things that I've done with Bible history and archaeology and customs and culture, the Jewish roots of our faith, this always fans the flames of the Spirit in me. And they burn to such an extent that I even keep, can't keep it in anymore. Well, we'll be going to Lesson 3, and in Lesson 3, I've entitled it The Bread and the Lamb. We're going to focus in on the Last Supper as part of it, and we're going to find out that Jesus did not do a Passover meal. He couldn't have. Remember, God said in Leviticus 23 that the Passover meal must happen on a specific day. Jesus did not eat it on that day. I don't care what the Essenes did. I don't care what other groups may have done. God said it. It's fixed. So Jesus' meal was on Nisan 14, the day before. So what was his last supper? Number two. We know that this whole thing about Exodus and the Passover and so on, this is all written to a bunch of slaves who just come out of Egypt. I mean, if we believe that Moses wrote this, he wrote this to them. Maybe they first read all of the copy on the plains of Moab before they crossed the Jordan into Jericho. Who knows? All those slaves knew was Egypt. They had assimilated into the pagan culture. And so we're going to see how God uses Egypt to help his people understand in a deeper way, more about Passover, which means that we will know more in a deeper way about Jesus, the Lamb of God, 
who takes away the sins of the world. So until then, I wish you shalom uvraka, shalom and blessings. Mm-hmm.